When making an investment, we're all taught to evaluate the risk and the return. Are we taking enough time to evaluate the risk and return for hormone replacement therapy? You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. Joining me today is Dr. Howard Hodes, Professor of Cardiology, of Medicine and Preventive Medicine, along with Molecular Pharmacology and Toxicology, and Director of the Atherosclerosis Research Unit, Division of Cardiovascular Medicine at Keck School of Medicine at the University of Southern California. Dr. Hodes, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. You've got a lot of titles, and you must spend a lot of time reading. Absolutely. A lot of ways I'm paid just to sit in my office and read the literature. That's kind of what's missing in uh, practicing medicine these days. We don't have enough time to really dissect what's published and figure out what's going on. Oh, I think that's absolutely true. I, I think you know, doctors, treating physicians are squeezed in many ways, and obviously one of those is financially. So it kind of forces physicians to see more and more patients on a daily basis. And once they do that and then they go home to family and they're spending time with family, they're not sitting down and taking the careful read of the literature that, that really is important. This is not to say things negative about physicians. It's just reality. And so I think in the long run, physicians aren't as well-read as in the days when, when they did have more time. To, to do such things. Well, I'd like to get into some stuff that you've written. In a recent article that you published in Menopause, you open with a statement saying, all medications are a double-edged sword. What did you mean by that? All medications have risks and benefits. And how we come down and decide how we're going to use a drug and in whom and at what dose and over what periods of time, we have to weigh that against the risk, that is being the benefits that we get out of, of using the drug. And so when we look across the landscape of medications we have for each and every disease and problem that humans encounter throughout life, we have to make choices and we need to put into perspective which drug for which women and at what dosage over which period of time that we're going to use use that product. You, know, you go on in your, in your article saying that looking at six trials and about 11,000 women, there's not enough support for using statins for primary prevention of coronary artery disease, and that you, you state it's really kind of an extrapolation or a conclusion that's made from studies looking at men. That's correct. That's the Walsh analysis of, of the entire existing literature at the time he published the paper, and there hasn't been really much more data since that time that we can look at. doesn't mean they don't work. What it's telling us is that when we look across all these well-controlled studies that are well-conducted, that there's just not enough evidence yet to support a significant reduction in heart disease in women and a far miss, not even close in terms of reducing mortality. So we have to keep that in, in mind when we're looking at lowering heart disease in women. It's not the same as in men, because in men, it's been pretty well concluded and shown with the data that when we reduce bad cholesterol, that indeed there is benefit. And in terms of men who have had a heart attack previously, we lower cholesterol in, we can actually reduce their mortality. And that ultimately is our goal. Yes, it's great to reduce that first heart attack and that second heart attack, but what we really would like to do is prolong life and reduce mortality. And so that's really an important point that needs to be stressed with lipid lowering in women, especially in primary prevention, that that data is not quite there. I mean, it's far from there, in fact, whereas we do have 
a large body of data with hormones and specifically with estrogen therapy. Let's talk a little bit about that. You've had time to read the Women's Health Initiative probably a few times. You've been able to dissect out and ferret out uh, what's really going on. So what is the effect of estrogen on heart disease prevention. What can we say today in October of 2007? When we look at the data, and it's not just WHI data, I think your listening audience should understand that you know there's about 40 years of data in this field, some of it observational, some of it cohort, and some of it randomized trials. WHI has gotten a lot of press because it reported, at least publicly, that it went against what everybody thought about hormones. So there's sort of a gap between the public knowledge and the data. And there's also a discordance between what we've seen in the observational studies and what the randomized trials have told us, if you look at it from, say, a 10,000-foot point of view. But if we get into the data, what we find is that in women who received the hormone therapy before the age of 60 or within 10 years of menopause, there is benefit. And why that's important is because all the previous studies that have been done in observational studies and cohort studies have been in these younger women. So the data really aren't so discordant after all. And that's what's really important, that we now have a very good understanding that the effect of estrogen and hormones is modified by the age of the woman, that is, when she starts the hormone, and we see the benefit below 60, or the time since menopause, which we would be before 10 years, or since menopause within 10 years. So there does appear to be benefit in this younger cohort or subgroup of women, which again is consistent with the 40 years of, of observational data that we had prior to conducting these randomized trials. And this obviously is a very, very important, not only for public health purpose reasons, in terms of you know which women we select to put on the hormone, but it's also important in terms of our understanding of prevention. And you may recall that there have been a lot of randomized trials. We conducted some ourselves actually disproving, quote-unquote disproving, that antioxidants work, okay, like vitamin E. But you know something? We need to rethink that because maybe our individuals, our patients that we put on these products in these studies, maybe they were too old. Maybe we need to start individuals at a younger age to get the prevention out of these products. So I think it's cast a whole rethinking in everything we've done in the field of prevention and atrial sclerosis, and we just can't so easily dismiss a product because one study done in middle-aged individuals doesn't prevent heart disease because you may have to start a little earlier to get that benefit. So WHI, in relation to all the other studies, observational studies and cohort studies, has really given us some, some really nice information beyond, let's say, just hormones. If you've just joined us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Caskell. I'm talking today with Dr. Howard Hodes, Professor of Molecular Pharmacology and Toxicology and Director of the Atherosclerosis Research Unit Division of Cardiovascular Medicine at Keck School of Medicine at the University of Southern California. We're talking about this shift in thinking regarding hormone replacement therapy it's kind of a shift back because we shifted away for a while since the publication of WHI, and you're saying that was really kind of a mistake. I don't want to say a mistake. I think in the initial release of the data in 2002, and, and one has to keep that in mind, that that was the estrogen plus progestin arm of the study, or the estrogen progestin study, 
which was continuous combined. So women got both products at the same time on a daily basis for the entire trial. That was released in 2002. I certainly would agree that the data were rushed to publication, and within that rush were probably a lot of statements as well as misstatements about the data in particular at the time. And in addition, no information in regards to the age or time from menopause effect was reported in that 2002 paper. So the message was large study, cost of taxpayers, lots of money, a well-done study also, by the way, and look, it doesn't work. In fact, it may even increase heart disease. And then we learned subsequently over the next five years as the data are published slowly in different journals, not all in one place until recently, that age and time for menopause do indeed modify the effect. So in a way, perhaps because of the rush to publish and the rush to get the information out there because the thought was we need to protect the public health of women, in that rush, perhaps the data just either weren't analyzed or just weren't presented because they weren't completely understood at the time. So either way, you look at it, it perhaps led to a disservice to women, especially the younger women, and also the the concept of this window of opportunity where we want to treat women early, get the hormones going at the time of menopause, say within that six-year period, and now we have women that, you know, lots of women who weren't started on hormones, and now we're approaching the end of that window. So if we don't get that message out there, they're going to be beyond that window of benefit over risk, and they're going to flip over into that risk greater than benefit, and they're, they're going to potentially miss the opportunity for heart disease prevention as well as prevention of bone fractures and, and other positive effects that they can get out of hormone therapy. What evidence do we have for the atheroprotective effect of hormone treatment according to the, the stage of atherosclerosis? What have we seen or what have you seen? We did, starting mid-90s, early 2000, we learned from two studies we did, sister studies, one called Wellheart and one called EPAT. Wellheart was done in women with established heart disease. This was an angiographic trial, so we looked at women at baseline who had at least one coronary lesion greater than 30% diameter stenosis. And then, and then those women were randomized in the study, and they were followed over three years, given hormone versus placebo, and then, and then we re-angiogrammed them again and looked at the coronary lesions again. And what we found in that study was that hormones, estrogen alone, and estrogen plus progestin, not continuous but sequentially administered, had no effect on lesion progression. Now, in its sister study called EPAT, this is the estrogen prevention of atherosclerosis trial, these were women who were healthy. They came in, they were totally devoid of symptoms of heart disease, they had no history of heart disease, and so this was a clean population. And we followed them a little differently. We looked at the wall thickness in the carotid artery, but that, you know, we can't do angiograms in healthy individuals, obviously, without symptoms. So we followed the effect of unopposed estrogen on the wall thickening, which is a measure of atherosclerosis, and indeed we found a significant treatment effect. So the stage of atherosclerosis probably plays a very important role, and animal studies have borne out this hypothesis also, and that's what sort of led us to doing these sister studies seen in non-human primates, for example, that if the lesions already exist, hormones aren't going to have any effect. But the lesions, 
if you're trying to prevent those lesions and you start the therapy before the lesions develop, you can actually prevent the formation of lesions. You said we can't do angiograms on everybody, but what if we did carotid IMTs or coronary CT angiography on everybody and actually see what their actual plaque burden is to stratify them? I think that's something that a lot of us are very interested in because it's like we're learning in everything in medicine. You know, We have to decide which drug for which patient. And this may be one way to do it. And this is how prevention is going in general. You know, we're looking at two ways to try to screen people for being, let's say, you know, lipid-lowering susceptible or for the benefit and, and say hormone responsive for the benefit. There's different ways we're approaching this. One's genetic, and that's very complex, and I think that's a further long-range goal, but we need, we're working on that. And the other is using screening modalities, imaging, as you just suggested. Well, Dr. Howard Hodes, thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And thanks for listening.